Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, de-political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Yes, Judge Brandeis was very important to the Zionist movement and the modern state of Israel. In Waltham, Massachusetts, there's the Brandeis University and they have the Shusterman Center for Israel Studies there. They also have the Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies. So it's a very Israeli-based university named after Judge Brandeis. And so he continues to influence future generations. And interestingly enough, his cohort, Judge Felix Frankfurter, both of those guys, of course, in the parashim, as we just heard, has a famous quote, the real rulers in Washington are invisible to exercise power from behind the scenes. And he would know because he was a part of that secret society dedicated to fostering Zionism and creating the modern state. In 1912, prominent Jewish-American attorney Louis Brandis, who was to go on to become a Supreme Court justice, became a Zionist. Within two years, he became head of the International Zionist Central Office, newly moved to America from Germany. While Brandis is an unusually well-known Supreme Court Justice, most Americans are unaware of the significant role he played in World War I and of his connection to Palestine. Some of this work was done with Felix Frankfurter, who became a Supreme Court Justice two decades later. Perhaps the aspect of Brandis that is least known to the general public, and often even to academics, is the extent of his zealotry 
and the degree to which he used covert methods to achieve his aims. In 1982, historian Bruce Allen Murphy, in a book that won a Certificate of Merit from the American Bar Association, reported that Brandis and Frankfurter had secretly collaborated over many years on numerous covert political activities. Zionism was one of them. Quote, in one of the most unique arrangements in the court's history, Brandis enlisted Frankfurter, then a professor at Harvard Law School, as his paid political lobbyist and lieutenant, writes Murphy, in his book, The Brandis-Frankfurter Connection, The Secret Political Activities of Two Supreme Court Justices. Quote, Working together over a period of 25 years, they placed a network of disciples in positions of influence and labored diligently for the enactment of their desired programs. This adroit use of the politically skillful Frankfurter as intermediary enabled Brandis to keep his considerable political endeavors hidden from the public, continues Murphy. Brandis only mentioned the arrangement to one other person, Murphy writes, another Zionist lieutenant, Court of Appeals Judge Julian Mack. One reason Brandis and Frankfurter kept their arrangement secret was that such behavior by a sitting Supreme Court justice is considered highly unethical. As an editorial in the New York Times pointed out following the publication of Murphy's book, quote, the Brandis-Frankfurter arrangement was wrong. It serves neither history nor ethics to judge it more kindly as some seem disposed to do. The prolonged meddlesome Brandis-Frankfurter arrangement violates ethical standards. The Times reiterates a point also made by Murphy. The fact that Brandis and Frankfurter kept their arrangement secret demonstrated that they knew it was unethical, or at least realized that the public would view it as such. Quote, they were dodging the public's appropriate measure of fitness. Later, when Frankfurter himself became a Supreme Court justice, he used similar methods Quote, placing his own network of disciples in various agencies and working through this network for the realization of his own goals. These included both Zionist objectives and Frankfurter's stewardship of FDR's programs to bring the United States into battle against Hitler. Their activities, Murphy notes, were, quote, part of a vast, carefully planned and orchestrated political crusade undertaken first by Brandis through Frankfurter and then by Frankfurter on his own to accomplish extrajudicial political goals. Frankfurter had joined the Harvard faculty in 1914 at the age of 31, a post gained after a Brandis-initiated donation from financier Jacob Schiff to Harvard created a position for Frankfurter. Then, Murphy writes, quote, for the next 25 years, Frankfurter shaped the minds of generations of the nation's most elite law students. After Brandis became head of the American Zionist movement, he, quote, created an advisory council, an inner circle of his closest advisors, and appointed Felix Frankfurter as one of its members. The Parashim. Even more surprising to this author, and even less well known to the public and to the academics, is Brandeis's membership in a secret society that covertly pushed Zionism both in the U.S. and internationally. Israeli professor Dr. Sarah Schmidt first reported this information in an article about the society published in 1978 in the American Jewish Historical Quarterly. 
she also devoted a chapter to the Society in a 1995 book. Author and former New York Times editor Pete Gross, sympathetic to Zionism, also reported on it in both a book and several subsequent articles. According to Gross, a highly regarded author, Brandis was a leader of, quote, an elitist secret society called the Parushim, the Hebrew word for Pharisees and separate, which grew out of Harvard's menorah society. Schmidt writes, quote, The image that emerges of the Parashim is that of a secret underground guerrilla force determined to influence the course of events in a quiet, anonymous way. Gross writes that Brandis used the Parashim as, quote, a private intellectual cadre, a pool of manpower for various assignments. Brandis recruited ambitious young men, often from Harvard, to work on the Zionist cause and further their careers in the process. Quote, As the Harvard men spread out across the land in their professional pursuits, Gross reports, their interests in Zionism were kept alive by secretive exchanges and the trappings of a fraternal order. Each invited initiate underwent a solemn ceremony, swearing the oath to, quote, guard and to obey and to keep secret the laws and the labor of the fellowship, its existence and its aims. At the secret initiation ceremony, new members were told this. You are about to take a step which will bind you to a single cause for all your life. You will for one year be subject to an absolute duty whose call you will be impelled to heed at any time, in any place, and at any cost. And ever after, until our purpose shall be accomplished, you will be fellow of a brotherhood whose bond you will regard as greater than any other in your life, dearer than that of family, of school, of nation. While Brandeis was a key leader of the Parashim, an academic named Horace M. Collin was its founder. Created in 1913, Collin was an academic first hired by Woodrow Wilson, who was then president of Princeton, to teach English there. When Collin founded the Parashim, he was a philosophy professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Collin is generally considered the father of cultural pluralism. This is all still coming from Allison Ware's book, and she has a great website called If Americans Knew. In her book on Colin, Smith includes more information on the society in a chapter entitled Colin's Secret Army, the Parashim. Now, I've tried to find this book. Actually, I have found it, but it's like 100 bucks. I'm not going to pay that. She reports, A member swearing allegiance to the Parashim felt something of a spirit of the commitment to a secret military fellowship. Colin invited no one to become a member until the candidate had given specific assurances regarding devotion and resolution to the Zionist cause. Smith writes, and each initiate had to undergo a rigorous analysis of his qualifications, loyalty, and willingness to take orders from the order's executive council. Not surprisingly, it appears that Frankfurter was also a member. Members of the Parashim were quite clear about the necessity of keeping their activities secret. An early recruiter to the Parashim explained, An organization which has the aims we have must be anonymous, must work silently, and through education and infection, rather than through force and noise. 
He wrote that to work openly would be suicidal for their objective. That sounds a lot like the Fabian Society. Gross describes how the group worked towards achieving its goals. The members set about meeting people of influence here and there, casually, on a friendly basis. They planted suggestions for action to further the Zionist cause long before the official government planners had come up with anything. For example, Gross writes, As early as November 1915, a leader of the Parashim went around suggesting that the British might gain some benefit from a formal declaration in support of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. Brandeis was a close friend of President Woodrow Wilson and used his access to advocate for the Zionist cause, at times serving as conduit between British Zionists and the president. In 1916, Wilson named Brandeis to the Supreme Court. At that time, as was required by standard ethics, Brandeis gave into the pressure to officially resign from all his private clubs and affiliations, including his leadership of Zionism. But behind the scenes, he continued this Zionist work, quietly receiving daily reports in his Supreme Court chambers and issuing orders to his loyal lieutenants. When the Zionist Organization of America was reorganized in 1918, Brandeis was listed as its honorary president. However, he was more than just honorary. As historian Donald Neff writes, through his lieutenants, he remained the power behind the throne. One of these lieutenants, of course, was Frankfurter. Zionist membership expanded dramatically during World War I, despite the efforts of some Jewish anti-Zionists, one of whom called the movement a foreign, un-American, racist, and separatist phenomenon. Now, we learned that the Parashim, that secret society, spawned out of the Menorah Society out of Yale. And it says here, The Menorah Society was also a largely Zionist organization and was similarly secretive about this. An essay from the time that states that the Menorah Society camouflaged its Zionism by organizing itself as a purely nonpartisan body so as to obtain a larger membership. The writer reports that practically all the leaders and active workers in the Menorah Society are Zionists. The thing of which the menorah boasts now is its little list of prize conversions to Zionism. That was from Mark Rader, Pioneers and Pace Setters, Boston's Jews and American Zionism. You know, when I was looking up the name Parashim, which I first heard in the book by Allison Ware against our better judgment, it brought up an article this is n-academic.com. This is Parashem. The Parashem were disciples of Rabbi Elijah ben Solomon Zalman, known as the Vilna Goan, who left Lithuania to settle in the land of Israel, then a province of the Ottoman Empire at the beginning of the 19th century. The name Parashem comes from the Hebrew parash, meaning to separate. Because this ascetic group attempted to separate themselves from what they saw as the impurities of the society around them. Influenced by the Vilna Gowan, who wanted to go to Eretz Israel, but was unable, a large group of his disciples and their families, numbering over 500, were inspired to follow his vision. Enduring great hardships and danger, they traveled to and settled in the Holy Land, where they had a profound effect on the future history 
of the Yishuv HaYashan. Most of the Perushim settled in Safed, Tiberias, and in Jerusalem, setting up what were known as the Kolel Perushim and forming the basis of the Ashkenazi communities there. Their history is chronicled in Hastening Redemption by Israeli historian Ari Morgenstern. Now, there's something very interesting about the rabbi that they call the Vilna of Goan, which I will mention in a few minutes. I had actually heard about him from the guest that I had on months and months ago, Deanne Loper, who wrote the book Kabbalah Secrets Christians Need to Know. And that episode, I think, is just called Kabbalah Secrets, and it's great. But she writes about him. And I also had read some things that Tex Mars had written about that guy. But anyway, let's read a little bit more from this article, then I'll tell you what I know about him. It says, The Journey to the Holy Land. The Parashim began their journey from the city of Shiklav, about 300 kilometers southeast of Vilna in Lithuania. The organization they formed was called the Chezon Zion, or Prophecy or Vision of Zion, and was based on three main principles— Rebuild Jerusalem as the acknowledged Torah center of the world, aid and speed the ingathering of the Jewish exile, and expand the currently settled areas of the land of Israel. The Parashim migrated in three groups. The first group left in 1808, led by Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Shaklov, and the following two in 1809, led by Rabbi Sayad Ben, Rabbi Noson Noda of Vilna, and Rabbi Israel of Shaklov. They traveled via Constantinople on foot and by horse and wagon, and then sailed by boat to Acre. The trips lasted about 15 months, and the travelers suffered many hardships, including starvation. The journey was made all the more dangerous because of the Napoleonic Wars that were raging across Europe. Reaching the shores of Palestine, however, was not the end of their journey. When the Parashim first arrived, they faced a ban on Ashkenazi Jews settling in Jerusalem. The ban had been in effect from the early 1700s when, as a result of outstanding debts, the Ashkenazi synagogues of the Old City had been forcibly closed and many Ashkenazim were forced out of the city and barred from returning. While some managed to evade the ban by entering Jerusalem disguised as Sephardi Jews, most of the Parashim journeyed on to Safed, where they joined a strong Sephardi community that was already there. Besides the Sephardim, the community comprised many Hasidic Jews, with whom the Parashim, as Ashkenazi Jews who followed the Vilna Goan, had an ongoing feud. However, the two groups set aside their ideological differences and worked hand-in-hand to settle the land and develop their community and eventually intermarried. The Aliyah of the Perushim had a widespread and ongoing effect on the Jews in Palestine. They spread the teachings of the Vilna Goan, which had considerable influence on Jewish thought and religious practice amongst the Ashkenazi community. They also set up several Kalels, founded the Jerusalem neighborhood of Mia Shurim, and were instrumental in rebuilding the Herva Synagogue, which had lain in neglected ruin for 140 years. Now, this is what I wanted to mention about the Vilna of Goan, which was the rabbi that they were following. And that's where the Parashim came from. And I'd heard Tex Mars and Deanne Loper, whom I had on the show, talk about how some of these rabbis, some of these Orthodox rabbis, 
believed in a holy serpent. They talked about a holy snake, a holy serpent. When I first heard that, I thought, ah, that's crap. But the more I looked into it, I was like, you know what? They are 100% correct. It says here, the Talmud teaches that serpents encircle the righteous during their lives, attending to their needs and guiding their actions. And the Talmud concludes that the serpent is the great servant of man. That's Sanhedrin 50b. Rabbi Jacob ben Cohen declares outright that the Messiah is a snake. Rabbi Michael Ezra further states, Our sages explain that in Gematria, the Hebrew words Moshiach or Messiah and Nakash or serpent have the same numerical value, which is 358. Rabbi Elijah ben Solomon perhaps the most famous of historical rabbis, known as the Vilna of Goan, heartily agrees with Rabbi Cohen's conclusions. Not only is the serpent Messiah and Redeemer of the Jews, but the Zohar states, the Holy Serpent is the fountainhead, root, and essence for all of God's sacred revelatory light. Of course, the Zohar is where they get the Kabbalah from. It's the foundation of the Kabbalah. Beit HaDarek, a popular Jewish religious group, published an article, The Revelation of the Holy Snake. According to this group of Jewish scholars, quoting the Zohar 11 through 54a, we are told, The serpent is wise and is a counselor to God. The rabbis in their holy books of Talmud and Kabbalah agree that the serpent is man's great helper and friend. Rabbi Ibn Ezra states, Serpents stand as servants to do your will. Rabbi Michael Leitman, and Michael Leitman, we will play on a different episode, actually claims that Jews come from another world, and they have come to earth to save the world, which is something you kind of hear in different terms called Tiki Olam. But Rabbi Leitman, in his daily Kabbalah lesson of the Zohar, stressed that the snake comes as medication, an angel sent to us. We should be grateful to the serpent for its help. The serpent has a very important mission. The serpent is an angel from heaven. In the Safaria, another book that they follow, Tali the dragon is above the universe as a king on his throne. The sphere is the year as a king in his state, the heart of man as a king in warfare. And our God made the state of opposition, good and evil, Good from the good and evil from the evil. Happiness is reserved for the just and the misery for the wicked ones. But I'm looking at this article that's talking about the snake. And this is from their own writings. And what people need to understand is the Orthodox Jews, and Israel Shahak makes this plainly clear, they supposedly follow the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. But in their yeshivas, their schools, they don't really teach the Torah. What they focus on is the commentary books, books that the rabbis wrote about what they thought that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, really meant because they don't take it as literal. They have all these mystical ideas of what it means. Now, in Itzhak Shapira, another rabbi's book, he says in the Kosher Pig, in a section in there, In the world to come, the righteous will recline with their crowns in their heads, basking in the pleasure of the radiance of God's presence. 
This holy serpent, say the rabbis, is the fountainhead, root, and the essence for all of God's sacred revelatory light. The primordial serpent, the snake of Gan Eden, the Leviathan, the penetrating ray of light emanating from the Ein Sof and the supernal Deot of the Godhead, are different dimensions of divine consciousness. Leviathan is depicted as the Alboros, and we know the Alboros is kind of like the uh, snake eating itself. It's the circle where the snake's eating its tail. You see that in a lot of occult writings. The serpent with its tail in its mouth and represents the devouring serpent covering the earth. It signifies the completion of an age and the return to Tikkun Olam, which I mentioned is what the Jews think is they, they are going to restore the earth the way it should be. It's called Tikkun Olam. You can call it New World Order, maybe. That's kind of the way I see it, their own version of New World Order. The Repair of the World. The Theosophical Society's website, an esoteric branch of Kabbalah, states, The area inside the serpent's circle represents the whole universe and everything in it. In the book of Job, Leviathan is called a king over all the children of pride. In Kabbalah, Leviathan is worshipped as the sacred serpent, and is the bridge across the abyss of the Deot that connects man to the divine. But in Isaiah 27.1, the Lord says, He will punish the piercing and crooked serpent and slay the dragon that is in the sea. In the cosmology of Kabbalah, the Sephirot tree and all of its creation is said to emanate out of the cosmic sea of the abyss, destined to return to the nothingness of Einsof, the god of forces, in the world to come. Those creatures whose work is complete, now free of their destiny, pass beyond the seventh heaven of Arabot and rise up out of the vast sea of creation, crying, I am, as they ascend through the abyss of Deot, of Azalut, and into the union with the crown of crowns, into the knowing and being of God. In Revelation 9, 1 and 11, we see a beast rising out of the sea of the abyss, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek tongue hath his name as Apollyon. This bottomless pit is the abyss, derived from the world of the Buthos, which refers to the sea, the deep or the mysterious depth. Part of this came out of the Kabbalah Secrets book, and she's quoting a bunch of stuff from the book by the rabbi Itzhak Shapira with his kosher pig book. So it's amazing what these guys have taught, do teach, and what they believe. And probably 99% of people have no earthly idea about it. And I just wanted to kind of try and help people understand that there's some pretty wild teachings out there. And I think that if most people knew, they'd want to look into it for themselves and kind of find out, well, what are these guys teaching? Because they have their own apocalyptic idea. They think that they're going to create a new world order, a great reset. They think that the great reset is going to happen because people will be reincarnated over and over again until we all follow the law to the T and then we can all go to heaven, which is pretty similar to what some of the New Age groups 
believe as far as as far as reincarnation goes they don't exactly believe that people will follow the law or the jewish law especially to the t but they think and this is many of them that people will be reincarnated until the point to where they get everything right and they are an enlightened being and then we can all have this heavenly experience so I was going to wait for another episode, but since we've already talked about serpent symbology in Kabbalah and Orthodox Judaism, let's look a little bit because I found the entire quote by Rabbi Michael Leitman. He is a very influential rabbi in Israel. You can go on and see a lot of his videos. He's a pusher of this Tiki Olam he comes off like a new ager of, you know, he wants this world peace and everyone to come together, but you know how I feel about that. I don't think it can ever happen. And they use that to fool people into giving up their rights. And so on Michael Leitman's website, he has another link on there to another rabbi who is openly, openly praising communism and saying that's the way to go. Now, we won't talk about that article just yet, but we will talk a little bit more about the serpent symbolism. Leitman says, a person starts his correction from the lowest critical point when the serpent and Malkut, which is unable to receive any light, are revealed. The serpent has a very important mission. This is why the sin crouches at our door. It is written in a good rather than a bad sense. The creator prepared a serpent to help us enter the spiritual world. The serpent causes us to make the most basic revelation that we are unable to receive the light inside our egotistic desires. Don't even try. You will be beating your head against a brick wall and will never succeed. Leave your egotistic desires because you won't be able to do anything with them. You have to rise above them in order to leap above the world. This is what the serpent is explaining to a person. The serpent comes like an angel sent to us by the Creator in order to push us towards correction. Yet, we should be grateful to the serpent for its help. This snake comes as medication. Indeed, it is not a coincidence that the snake is a symbol of medicine and poison and is the basis of all medications. The Creator guides us using bites from the two serpents until we suddenly feel the nature which is above our own. We then understand that we have to rise above both of these serpents, thereby finding the one who governs them. Now, Joel David Baxt, he is another Jewish author. I'm not sure if he's a rabbi or not, but he writes some of these wild books, okay? In this book, this is The Secret Doctrine of Gaon of Vilna. The Gaon of Vilna, we learned, was a rabbi. He says, Adam named the serpent, thereby magnifying its unique essence, and was to use it for divine purpose. This is especially true of the Nakash, for under Adam's subjugation, it had a very sacred mission to perform. More than any other animal, it was to be a partner with Adam in bringing the final tikkum, a completion and transformation of all creation. In a couple of Sentences down, he says, Kabbalah, with theoretical science, can stimulate the redemption process. Again, that's Joel David Baxt, The Secret Doctrine of Gaon of Vilna. I found on another Kabbalah website, 
and says, just as Amalek, this is a story out of the Bible they've kind of twisted around, but just as Amalek represents the epitome of evil, so does the positive snake represent the epitome of good. The Mashiach himself, Mashiach is Messiah, the Mashiach himself is referred to as the holy snake, as alluded to by the phenomenon that the numerical value of Mashiach, or Messiah, is 358. It's the same as that of the word for snake, or nakash. Nakash is snake in Hebrew. In the Zohar, it is told that when the holy snake, or the Mashiach, that's one of their magical books, the main book that makes up Kabbalah, but anyway, in the Zohar, it is told that when the holy snake, or the Mashiach, will kill the evil snake, he will thereby merit to marry the divine princess to unite with the origin of the souls of Israel and so to bring redemption to the world. And a couple of paragraphs down, it says, Dan shall be a snake on the way, a serpent on the path. Mashiach, or Messiah, the epitome of the figure of the holy snake, will be a descendant of Judah, the son of David. Regardless of whatever platform you're listening to the Oddcast on, may I suggest you get on over to alternatecurrentradio.com and check out all their fine music and talk shows. That's my podcasting family. You can find the Oddcast there, but many other great shows like their flagship, The Boiler Room. Let me tell you, they've been great to me, and they intend on bringing you the unfiltered truth in the new era. So if you want to support something real, support alternatecurrentradio.com and tell them the odd man sent you. Thanks. Now, I wasn't going to read this part. I was going to wait till I do a show on Kabbalah in this series. But I think it's important to kind of go ahead and put this in here since we're getting into this esoteric stuff. So Israel Shahak, I think I've quoted from his book. If I haven't, I will be. He was an Israeli scholar, and he's dead now. He's written several books, including Jewish Fundamentalism in Israel. This is what he says. Below is a brief description. Dr. Shahak provides the readers on the structure and beliefs of Judaic Kabbalism. According to the Kabbalah, the universe is ruled not by one God, but by several deities of various characters and influences, emanated by a dim, distant first cause. Omitting many details, one can summarize the system as follows. From the first cause, first a male god called Wisdom or Father, and then a female goddess called Knowledge or Mother were emanated or born. From the marriage of these two, a pair of younger gods were born. Son, also called by many other names such as Small Face or the Holy Blessed One, and Daughter, also called Lady or Matronit, a word derived from Latin, or Shekinai, or Queen, and so on. Some people say Shekinah. That's probably the correct pronunciation, but I've heard it said both ways. He goes on to say, These two younger gods should be united, but their union is being prevented by the machinations of Satan, who in this system is a very important and independent personage. The creation was undertaken by the first case in order to allow them to unite, but because of the fall, they became more disunited than ever, and indeed, Satan has managed to come very close to the divine daughter and even to rape her, either seemingly or in fact. He says opinions differ on this. 
The creation of the Jewish people was undertaken in order to mend the break caused by Adam and Eve, and under Mount Sinai, this was for a moment achieved. The male godson, incarnated in Moses, was united with the goddess Shekinah. Unfortunately, the sin of the golden calf again caused disunity in the Godhead, but the repentance of the Jewish people has mended matters to some extent. Similarly, each incident of biblical Jewish history is believed to be associated with the union or disunion of the divine pair. Daughter falls closely into the power of Satan, while son takes various female satanic personages to his bed instead of his proper wife. The duty of pious Jews is to restore, through their prayers and religious acts, the perfect divine unity in the form of sexual union between the male and female deities. Now back to the serpent for a second. Rabbi Moshel Rabbeinu says that the religious Jew embarks on a spiritual journey to the center of the Torah, the secret in the serpent's belly. That's from Joel David Baxt as well. Joel David Baxt also says, In messianic times and beyond, it, the serpent, will be redeemed and revealed in all its glory and awesomeness. Again, that's from Journey to the Center of the Torah, the Secret in the Serpent's Belly. Allegedly in the Sanhedrin 101a to 101b, it says that on the Sabbath, one is permitted to charm snakes and serpents. So what to make of it? Is it just this symbolism that we don't understand and it seems strange to us because of the serpent in the Garden of Eden? You have to understand they don't believe that the Bible, any of those stories are what they say they are. They derive multiple meanings from each verse, even just single words. And also there is a numerical value to a lot of this stuff because they're heavy into gematria. I wanted to look also at what some of these other belief systems say about the serpent, because it has had different meanings throughout the centuries. So Oswald Wirth, he was a Freemason and a creator of one of the tarot card decks. He said the serpent, inspirer of disobedience, of insubordination and revolt, was cursed by the ancient theocrats, although it was honored among initiates to become like unto divinity. Such was the goal of the ancient mysteries. Today, the program of initiation has not changed. Manly P. Hall, Rosicrucian and Freemason writer, the serpent is the universal symbol and prototype of the universal Savior who redeems the world by giving creation the knowledge of itself and the realization of good and evil. Lynn Perkins, he wrote a book called Masonry and the New Age. He was another Freemason. Man rose to divine status by partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent's advice to Eve was wiser than the recorded command of God. And I just want to point out that in the 29th degree of the Scottish Rite Freemasonry, it is titled The Night of the Brazen Serpent. Now, in biblical times, when the Hebrews were in the desert, wandering in the desert, they began to be attacked by snakes, and God told Moses to make a serpent staff, kind of a copper-looking serpent. He told him to make a pole or a staff and put a serpent figure on it, and it would keep the people from dying from the snake bites. Okay, now, instead of the people just accepting this, they began to worship 
the snake, the actual staff and the snake on the staff. And so that's another instance of the Hebrews kind of turning their back on God and, and kind of taking something completely out of context. So I think it's just kind of uh, something I wanted to put out there to show people that there's a whole other world out there that we're not aware of, that we're never going to be taught. And why not look into it? I think that uh, one thing that kind of came to me, and it was kind of a realization that I'm sure other people have had, but I'm not that bright. A lot of this stuff has been hidden under walls and walls, layers of esoteric wording, phrases, symbols, and different things like that. But also, a lot of these beliefs that come from the Zohar and the Talmud and all these different books, the Sefer Yetzirah, they were originally in Hebrew. So there was no way that most people, unless they spoke and could read Hebrew, would have any idea about any of this stuff. So... You know, these Orthodox and other sects of Jewry that use Kabbalah, it's not just the Orthodox, but they are the main ones. They've kind of had that benefit to kind of help them to kind of hide away a lot of these beliefs that would seem very, very strange to others. Now, don't get me wrong. I support whatever they want to believe. I think they should be able to believe it, and no one should hurt them or do anything of the sort. But I think that we have a right to know what they believe since they want to have such a large presence in the world as far as government and policies go. And since they receive so much funding and money, I think that we deserve to know what they actually think and what they're teaching. And, you know, we can actually learn from it and apply some of the things that we like to our own belief system. But I think we can take the things that we don't believe in and break them down and ask why they teach this, and try to look further into it and make up our own minds in that regard. And there's also a belief in the Kabbalah, or the Kabbalah, as they call it, of the Leviathan. And I believe there's two Leviathans, and we're going to get into that as well. But if you're familiar with your biblical terms and revelation, you know that the Leviathan is not a good thing, at least to us, but it is good to them just like the Holy Serpent is a good thing. So I wanted to bring that to you guys, and now we're going to move on to something different, and we'll probably look into this Kabbalah thing again in a few weeks. Now, the term Zionist or Zionism is based on Zion from the Hebrew name for a hill in Jerusalem associated with the biblical city and temple of David. Both Zionist and Zionism, as in terms, are credited to a Viennese Jewish Nationalist University student named Nathan Birnbaum in the 1890s. According to Dictionary.com, Zionism was cemented as the term for Jewish nationalism as opposed to Judaism for just the religion. In 1897, when activist Theodore Herzl helped create the World Zionist Organization, credited with starting the push that established the State of Israel in 1948. The organization declared its goal of securing a legal homeland for the Jews in the area of Palestine. Originally, Zionists considered other places to be the new Jewish state, such as Uganda, Argentina, Texas, and the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. They eventually settled on Palestine for their location, even though Palestine was already inhabited by a population that was 93 to 96% non-Jewish. The best analysis says the population was 96% Muslim and Christian who owned 99% of the land. Now keep in mind 
back in these times when they first started getting plans together for Zionism and a modern state, the majority of Jews were not Zionists. Zionism was seen as a secular thought process, a secular idea, and religious Jews believed that God would not want them to force themselves into a land. They believed that eventually God would just make it happen, not at the force of a gun or by dropping bombs, but God would bring it about by divine intervention. Let's look a little bit at Theodore Herzl, who's known as the father of Zionism. Theodor Herzl was an Austrian-Jewish journalist and playwright best known for his critical role in establishing the modern state of Israel. His pamphlet, Der Judenstaat, or The Jewish State, published in 1896, helped launch Zionism as a modern political movement whose objective, the establishment of a Jewish homeland, Herzl spent the rest of his life advancing. When Hans Herzl the son of Theodor Herzl, converted to Christianity in 1924, he eventually committed suicide because he was condemned by his fellow Jews. Activist Ralph Schoenman said in his book, The Hidden History of Zionism, that there are four overriding myths that have shaped the consciousness of most people in our society about Zionism. But I would say beyond that, the vast majority of modern people have no idea what Zionism is whatsoever. He said in this book, which was written in the 80s, the first, he said, is the myth, a land without a people for a people without a land, which is kind of the motto you hear when reading about Zionism and why they wanted to create the modern state where they did. This myth, Schoenman says, was cultivated by early Zionists to promote the fiction that Palestine was a remote, desolate place ready for the taking. This claim was quickly followed by denial of Palestinian identity, nationhood, or legitimate entitlement to the land in which the Palestinian people have lived throughout their recorded history. Second is the myth of Israeli democracy. Innumerable newspaper stories or television references to the Israeli state are followed by the assertion that it is the only real democracy in the Middle East, in fact, Israel is as democratic as the apartheid state of South Africa. Civil liberty, due process, and the most basic human rights are by law denied to those who do not meet racial religious criteria. The third myth, he says, is that of security. As the motor force of Israeli foreign policy, Zionists maintain that their state must be the fourth largest military power in the world because Israel has been forced to defend itself against imminent menaces from primitive, hate-consumed Arab masses only recently dropped from the trees. The fourth myth is that Zionism as the moral legate of victims of the Holocaust. This is at once the most pervasive and insidious of the myths about Zionism. Ideologues for the Zionist movement have wrapped themselves in the collective shroud of the six million Jews who fell victim to Nazi mass murder. The bitter and cruel irony of this false claim is that Zionists and the Zionist movement itself actively colluded with Nazism from its inception. And that is very true, and we will learn about that. To most people, it appears anomalous that the Zionist movement, which forever invokes the horror of the Holocaust, should have collaborated actively with the most vicious enemy ever faced by the Jews. The record, however, reveals not merely common interests, 
but a deep ideological affinity rooted in the extreme chauvinism which they share. Now, I've got a few quotes from a book called Israeli Exceptionalism. It says here, Consider a few dates and numbers that bear testimony to the demographic transformation affected by the Zionists in Palestine during the first half of the 20th century. At the start of the 19th century, there were 7,000 Jews living in the Ottoman Palestine, a mere 2.5% of its population. In 1882, their numbers had increased to 24,000, and their share in the total population had grown to 8%. In 1918, following 36 years of organized efforts to establish Jewish colonies, the Jewish population of Palestine had grown to 60,000. Their share was not much higher at 9.1%. Over the next three decades, following the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the rate of growth of the Jewish population accelerated dramatically. In 1946, the Jewish population had increased to 543,000, a ninefold increase since 1918. Over the same period, their share had also increased more than threefold to 30%. In 1949, the Jewish population of Israel, incorporating 78% of mandatory Palestine, had climbed to 1,014,000. On the contrary, the Arab population of this territory had plummeted to 160,000. Proportionately, the Jewish and Arab shares in the population of Israel now stood at 86.4 and 13.6%. In no time, the Palestinians had become a minority in 78% of their own country. The Arab population of the territory captured by Israel had plummeted from close to a million to 159,000.4. Where had all these Arabs gone? Had they been ethically cleansed under the cover of the War of 1948 by the Israeli military and other armed Jewish groups? Strenuously, in their official historiography, the Zionists have maintained that they had not driven out the Arab population of Israel. There were no massacres of Arabs, no rapes, no looting of Arab property. The Arabs had left voluntarily, following the advice of their leaders, to move out of the way of the victorious Arab armies that were advancing on Palestine. This is one of the entrenched myths created by Zionism after the War of 1948. Israel would never again allow the Palestinian Arabs to return to their homes inside Israel. This map and this description of what constituted Eretz Israel included all of Palestine, all of Transjordan, Cisjordan as it was then called, Arabia, two-thirds of Arabia, Egypt up to the Nile including Cairo, all of Lebanon, two-thirds of Syria, one-half of Iraq, the southern tier of Turkey, and Kuwait. Eretz, a formal document. So the Zionist apparatus and its imperial masters hadn't the slightest intention of resting with the partitioning and the handing over to this colonial settler uh, population, which was uh, 29% of the population by this time, 55% of the most fertile land. Within six months, even before the formation of the state, the Zionist apparatus carried out a massacre from one end of Palestine to the other. 
So let's look at some of the early Zionist quotes so we can get kind of an idea of what they had in mind. Again, we have a quote by Ben-Gurion. He said, The present map of Palestine was drawn by the British mandate. The Jewish people have another map, which our youth and adults should strive to fulfill, from the Nile to the Euphrates. Rabbi Fishman said the promised land was quite a large one, from the river of Egypt up to the Euphrates. Again, David Ben-Gurion said a partial Jewish state is not the end, but the beginning. We cannot be prevented from settling in the country and other parts of the region. And Israel Shamir once said, Palestine is not the ultimate goal of the Jews. The world is. Palestine is just a place for the world state headquarters. In the book The Jewish Paradox, there's another quote by David Ben-Gurion. If I were an Arab leader, I would never sign an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have taken their country. It is true God promised it to us, but how could that interest them? Our God is not theirs. There has been anti-Semitism, the Nazis, Hitler, Auschwitz. But was that their fault? They see but one thing. We have come and we have stolen their country. And why should they accept that? Again, Gurion said, Let us not ignore the truth among ourselves. Politically, we are the aggressors, and they defend themselves. The country is theirs because they inhabit it, whereas we want to come here and settle down, and in their view, we want to take away from them their country. Behind the terrorism is a movement which, though primitive, is not devoid of idealism and self-sacrifice. Another quote, We must do everything to ensure the Palestinians never do return. In 48, he said, Palestinians will never come back to their homes. The old will die and the young will forget. And in 1948, to the general staff from the Ben-Gurion biography by Michael Ben-Zohar, Ben-Gurion said, We should prepare to go over to the offensive. Our aim is to smash Lebanon, Transjordan, and Syria. The weak point is Lebanon, for the Muslim regime is artificial and easy for us to undermine. We shall establish a Christian state there, and then we will smash the Arab Legion. Eliminate Transjordan, and Syria will fall to us. We then move on and take Port Said, Alexandria, and Sinai. Now guess what? As crazy and horrific as this sounds, the Zionists did not want to save the older Jews in Germany because their death actually went to the cause of creating the modern state. And they knew that, and they actually wrote about that. And we're going to read from the horse's mouth here. Back to the hidden history of Zionism. In 1938, Ben-Gurion informed a meeting of labor Zionists in Great Britain. He said, If I knew that it would be possible to save all the children in Germany by bringing them over to England, and only half of them by transporting them to Eretz, Israel, then I opt for the second alternative. This obsession with colonizing Palestine and overwhelming the Arabs led the Zionist movement to oppose any rescue of Jews facing extermination because the ability to deflect select manpower to Palestine would be impeded. From 1933 to 1935, the World Zionist Organization, get this, turned down two-thirds of all German Jews who applied for immigration certificates. Burrell Katznelson editor of the labor Zionist Devar, described the cruel criteria of Zionism. German Jews were too old 
to bear children in Palestine. They lacked trade skills for building a Zionist colony, didn't speak Hebrew, and weren't Zionists. In place of these Jews facing extermination, the WZO brought to Palestine 6,000 trained young Zionists from the United States, Britain, and other safe countries. Worse than this, the World Zionist Organization not merely failed to seek any alternative for the Jews facing the Holocaust, the Zionist leadership opposed belligerently all efforts to find refuge for fleeing Jews. As of late 1943, while the Jews of Europe were being exterminated, the U.S. Congress proposed to set up a commission to study the problem. Rabbi Stephen Weiss, who was the principal American spokesman for Zionism, came to Washington to testify against the rescue bill because it would divert attention from the colonization of Palestine. This is the same Rabbi Wise who in 1938, in his capacity as leader of the American Jewish Congress, wrote a letter in which he opposed any change in U.S. immigration laws which would enable Jews to find refuge. He stated, It may interest you to know that some weeks ago, the representatives of all the leading Jewish organizations met in a conference. It was decided that no Jewish organization would at this time sponsor a bill which would in any way alter the immigration laws. The entire Zionist establishment made its position unmistakable in its response to a motion by 227 British members of parliament calling on the government to provide asylum in British territories for the persecuted Jews. The meager undertaking which was prepared was as follows. Quote, his Majesty's government issued some hundreds of permits and other immigration papers in favor of threatened Jewish families, unquote. But even this token measure was opposed by the Zionist leaders. At a parliamentary meeting on January 27, 1943, when the next steps were being pursued by over 100 members of parliament, a spokesperson for the Zionists announced that they opposed this motion because it did not contain preparations for the colonization of Palestine. This was a consistent stance. Haim Wiseman, the Zionist leader who had arranged the Balfour Declaration and was to become the first president of Israel, made this Zionist policy very explicit. The hopes of Europe's six million Jews are centered on immigration. I was asked, can you bring six million Jews to Palestine? I replied, no. From the depths of the tragedy, I want to save young people for Palestine. The old ones will pass. They will bear their fate or they will not. They are dust, economic and moral dust in a cruel world. Only the branch of the young shall survive. They have to accept it. Yitzhak Gruenbaum, the chairperson of the committee set up by the Zionists nominally to investigate the conditions of European Jews, said, and I quote, when they come to us with two plans, the rescue of the masses of the Jews in Europe or the redemption of the land, I vote without a second thought for the redemption of the land. The more said about the slaughter of our people, the greater the minimization of our efforts to strengthen and promote the Hebraization of the land. If there would be a possibility today of buying packages of food with the money of the Karen Hayasad or the United Jewish Appeal to send throughout Lisbon, would we do such a thing? No. And once again, no. Unquote. These kinds of things sound too evil, too heartless to be true. But he sources everything in the book 
and I'm not going to give you quotes that I can't source. So I suggest you guys find this book, The Hidden History of Zionism by Ralph Schoenman. You can get it for 6 or $7 on thrift books, along with Against Our Better Judgment by Allison Ware. Those two will get you started. And also get Lenny Brenner's books. He's got, he's got Zionism in the Age of the Dictators. Then part two is the reprise to that. And he's also got the 51 Documents book, which proves that, yes, the Zionists were working with the Nazis. And we'll talk about that later on in this series. And while we're on the subject, we talked about a few minutes ago that many Jews, the majority of Jews, did not want to move to Israel. And a lot of them had to, basically. They had no other choice. And when they got there, they were forced to sign up for the military. It was conscription. They had to learn to fight, and we're going to talk about what they were forced to do. And if they didn't fight, they may lose their jobs, they may lose the place they worked, they could be flogged or arrested. And we're talking about men and women. So this was forced patriotism, I guess you could say. And that's just another little-known fact about the early state. Now, there's been an incredible amount of rewriting of history And you really have to search to find anything that is not pro-Zionist these days. But if you are willing to put in the time and find some lesser biased sources, you will learn that Christians, Muslims, and Jews got along quite well in Palestine before the Zionists moved in. Abraham Leon asked in 1946, Have not the Jews really tried to return to this country? Why was it necessary to wait until the end of the 19th century for a Herzl, Theodore Herzl, to succeed in convincing them of this necessity? Why were all the predecessors of Herzl, like the famous Zabatai Zavi, treated as false messiahs? Why were the adherents of Zabatai Zavi fiercely persecuted by Orthodox Judaism? Now, I did a whole show in my Patreon. It was a Patreon-only exclusive on Zabatai Zvi. He was one of the so-called messiahs of Judaism. Now, Supreme Court Justice Brandeis, a Zionist leader, even wrote, Throughout the centuries, when Jewish influence was greatest during the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires, only a relatively small part of the Jews lived in Palestine, and only a small part of the Jews returned from Babylon when the temple was rebuilt. In addition, we observe the near absence of Jews in Palestine during the Islamic era, when Jewish communities flourished in nearly every major urban center of the Middle East, North Africa, and Spain. In the 1530s, there were only 5,000 Jews living in Palestine, when it had a population of 157,000. In the late 17th century, the Jewish presence had dwindled to 2,000 out of a population of 232,000. And in 1800, there were 7,000 Jews out of a population of 275,000.20. In the 17th century, both Algiers and Fez and several other Islamic cities contained larger Jewish populations than there was in all of Palestine. The official launching of Zionism did not spur a Jewish rush to Palestine either. When a growing stream of Jews was leaving Europe for Western destinations, Only some 75,000 Jews arrived in Palestine, 
between 1882 and 1914, compared to 1.7 million who left for the United States during this period. Moreover, only half of those who arrived in Palestine chose to make it their permanent home. Jewish immigration to Palestine picked up only in the 1930s, but this was because Western countries had closed their doors to Jewish immigrants in the preceding decades. In the period since its founding in 1948, despite rapidly advancing prosperity, Israel has attracted only a trickle of immigrants from the prosperous Jewish communities in Western countries. Starting in the 50s, most of the Jewish arrivals in Israel have consisted of economic migrants who could not gain entry into Western countries. None of this means that Eretz Israel is not a venerable place in Jewish religious imagination or that biblical history centered in Eretz Israel does not occupy an important place in the Jewish ethos. The historical evidence, however, shows that this Jewish connection to Israel as a spiritual center has not translated into a decision to migrate to Israel when Jews have been free to choose more prosperous and safer destinations. All right, guys, that concludes Those We Don't Speak Of, Part 2. Thank you so much for having the patience to stick with me here. I hope that this information fascinated you the way it fascinated me when I was researching it. Please have patience with me. I am doing so much research to put this series together, and that's why it's taking so long. And if you thought this episode was tantalizing, just wait till the next few episodes. We're going to cover more hidden history on Zionism and the founding of the modern state, but we're also going to get more into the esoteric side of Kabbalah and Judaism, especially Orthodox Judaism and Reform Judaism as well, because they both really rely on the Kabbalah or the Kabbalah. We're going to look into the Zohar and some of the writings and the basis, the foundation of the Zohar and who actually may have written it. So we're going to look into that and kind of talk about how the Zohar and the Kabbalah and the Tanya and these, and even the Talmud have this effect on the New Age belief system and how it kind of falls in with Mystery Babylon. Heck, I even found a so-called rabbi who calls himself the rabbi of Mystery Babylon. So we're going to talk about all that stuff in future episodes. Thank you so much for your support. I hope you're all doing well. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. You know, I used to say, early on when I was a kid, I'd say, when I was a young senator, I'd say, if I were a Jew, I'd be a Zionist. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist.